Let's turn again to the Lord in prayer as we prepare to read and hear God's word. Let's pray together. Almighty, gracious Father, the true understanding of your holy word helps us to grow into the fullness of the salvation you so freely offer in Christ. And as you promise that your word will not return to you void, but will accomplish your purposes, we ask that your word would move among us with power this day. Grant to all of us that our hearts, being freed from worldly affairs, may hear and grasp your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness. To your praise and honor and glory, through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Our scripture comes from the gospel according to Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bear. And the bear stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Chapter 7 of Luke's gospel takes us to Nain. Jesus had come here from Capernaum where he had just healed a centurion's servant who we are told was at the point of death. Now, Nain was located in Galilee, a little distance from Capernaum, about 20 to 25 miles to the southwest, which placed it about six miles to the southeast of Nazareth. It is significant to know these things about Nain because in many ways it reveals its insignificance. You see, outside of the fact that Nazareth was Jesus' hometown, it was a small and insignificant place. This is why at the beginning of John's gospel, when Philip tells Nathanael that they had found the one of whom the law and the prophets spoke, Jesus of Nazareth, Nathanael responded, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That gives us a little perspective concerning Nain, which was probably only about half the size of Nazareth. So Nain was a tiny little town, essentially six miles from nowhere. There's good reason then why this is the only time it is mentioned in the Bible. And it would have been a full day's journey from Capernaum where Jesus and his followers were coming from. And they arrived at the gate of the town just in time to meet a funeral procession. 
which was exiting the town on the way to the burial site. The dead, you see, were typically buried outside of the town, and this procession that Jesus and his followers encountered at the gate is revealed by Luke to be an especially tragic one. Luke tells us that the deceased was the only son of a widowed woman. She had lost her husband, and now she had lost her only son. The grief of losing a husband and then an only son must have been unbearable. But to make matters worse, in this culture, women were utterly dependent on men for their social and economic well-being. We see this in other places in Scripture like Ruth. This woman then was now essentially an orphaned parent. She was all alone. She had no family, which meant she not only had no companionship, but also no one to protect her or provide for her. Her son, who is implied here to be her only remaining male relative, was now dead and was being carried to the grave, which means she was a dead woman walking herself. She had no support system. She was totally vulnerable, totally hopeless. And who would care? She lived in a tiny town in the middle of nowhere. Now, imagine, if you will, the meeting of these two groups. There is the funeral procession with those mourning the death of this young man. And Luke tells us that a considerable crowd from the town had shown up to mourn this heartbreaking situation. And the widow and now orphaned mother would have been out ahead of the body, which would have been wrapped in a burial cloth and carried on what amounted to an open coffin. It was the picture of utter grief and devastation, hopelessness. And then there was Jesus and all those following him who other than perhaps being a little tired and hot from the journey were no doubt exuberant and eagerly expectant to see what Jesus would do next, still buzzing from his healing of the centurion's servant. And could there be two groups Two more drastically different groups sharing the same space further from one another emotionally and spiritually. Talk about a collision of those in a polar opposite frame of mind. And think about how ridiculous, how ridiculous the scene would have seemed to a bystander. This funeral procession is heading to the grave and a man in a crowd of people coming into the city approaches the mother and instructs her not to weep. That's absurd. And then he puts his hand on the the beer signaling the carriers of the corpse to stop. It was a move that would render him unclean. Is the man mad? Who would have the audacity Who would dare to tell a mourning mother who had just lost her only son to stop crying? Who would be so reckless to come into contact with a dead body or be so bold to stop a funeral procession from pressing forward to the grave? Has someone asked for his help? No. But before any questions could be asked, before assistance could be requested, this man speaks to the corpse. Young man. I say to you, arise. And to everyone's surprise, he did. Luke tells us, and listen carefully to these words, and the dead man, the dead 
man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. The dead man was dead no more. The young man had been resurrected right there on the way to the tomb. And Jesus' followers had witnessed Jesus perform miracles. They had seen him cast out demons and heal the sick, the last of which was said to be near death. But here, Jesus reveals himself to have power even over the greatest enemy, death itself. And no one there missed the significance of this miracle. You see, Nain was insignificant place. It was an insignificant place in the middle of nowhere except for the fact that it was in close proximity to a place long gone by this point, a place called Shunem. This was a site where Elisha, the prophet, raised from the dead the only son of a couple who had cared for Elisha during times when he was passing through this area. Elisha had been summoned by the mother to come and help, and Elisha, after sending his servant, came himself and prayed to the Lord and laid himself on the boy several times in an attempt to revive him until at last he was successful. This also draws to mind the only son of a widow who was raised from the dead by the prophet Elijah before him he had raised from the dead this boy by laying on him several times and crying out to the lord this is why the people responded to this miracle in luke saying a great prophet has arisen among us the raising of an only son to a widow is a picture that is not lost on them they make the connection to the work of the former prophets and certainly one of the points of this miracle was to demonstrate that God was active and present among his people. He was silent no longer. God was at work restoring lives. And here in Luke 7, it was the lives of two people that were resurrected. The dead son and his hopeless mother. But there are marked differences between these stories in First and Second Kings of Elijah and Elisha and the miracle Jesus performs in Luke 7. The mothers in both the Old Testament stories had come begging for the prophets to help. Here in Luke, we are told that Jesus saw the woman and had compassion on her. There is no prodding or pleading. Jesus sees and acts. Further, in the stories of Elijah and Elisha, they had to try repeatedly to raise the boys from the dead. Jesus simply speaks here in Luke 7. The power to raise the dead was shown to reside in himself. So Jesus is being revealed here to be more than a prophet, is greater than Elijah or Elisha. Whether the witnesses to this miracle fully understood this is not known, but here in these seven verses, we find encapsulated the gospel, who Jesus is and what he would do. You see, what is this small and seemingly insignificant place? It's Sterlington. It's Start. It's Calhoun. It's Chatham. It's Monroe and West Monroe. 
It is villages and towns and cities, great and small, all over the earth. God himself has left the glory of his throne in heaven to come to take the form of a servant to be present on this pale blue dot in the middle of nowhere in a vast universe. And for what? In order that strangers, nobodies, could be delivered from darkness, raised from the dead, brought into light and given life. And who is it laying lifeless on the bear? Who is it? It's me. And it's you. And God has come. This is why Jesus travels a full day's journey to this tiny town that is on the way to nowhere. He left long before the funeral procession had started, and he shows up just in time. Dearly beloved, you and I are not forgotten by God. He came looking for us, and he met you, and he met me being carried to the grave, dead in our sins. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This is what the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians, dead. Not sick, but still alive, dead. Being carried to the grave, following the prince of the power of the air, obeying the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Did we ask for his help? No, we couldn't. Can a dead man ask for help? Of course not. But God knows our condition. He knows our needs even before we articulate them to him. And God in his mercy, in his compassion, comes to our rescue. And he speaks life to us. By the way, Luke's gospel records Jesus later telling the parable of the prodigal son. The son, we know the story, wanders off, becomes a slave to his sin, dead to his family. And this is what it says. But while he, the son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt what? Compassion. And ran and embraced him and kissed him. Before the son could do anything, before he could even make it home, before he could beg his father to take him back as a servant, the father is arranging the celebration. And the father says, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is God's heart for us. And we see it here clearly on display in Jesus Christ. This is what the apostle Paul tells us. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There is an only son who gets carried all the way to the grave to taste death in the depth of its destructive power. But by God's grace, it isn't those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. It is the Son of God himself who laid down his life for my sake and for yours. This miracle is pointing to Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus takes our place. He takes our punishment. He takes the sting of death for us, and he conquers the grave that we might experience life, that we might experience victory even over the grave. But God being rich in mercy 
Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you understand? In the coming weeks, we will celebrate the incarnation, what C.S. Lewis referred to as the grand miracle. God became man in Jesus Christ. And he became man ultimately in order to offer himself as a sacrifice for us that our sins might be forgiven, that we might be reconciled back to God and that our greatest enemy, death, might be defeated. Christ came to destroy death by his power. And this miracle is giving us a foretaste of that truth. I absolutely love how Charles Spurgeon expressed this in only the way that Spurgeon could. He stated, our spiritual eyes see death upon the pale horse coming forth from the city gate with great exaltation. He has taken another captive. Upon that bear, behold the spoils of the dread conqueror. Mourners by their tears confess the victory of death like a general riding in triumph to the Roman capital. Death bears his spoils to the tomb. What? shall hinder him. Suddenly the procession is arrested by another. A company of disciples and much people are coming up the hill. We need not look at the company, but we may fix our eyes upon the one who stands in the center. A man in whom lowliness has always, was always evident, and yet majesty was never wanting. It is the living Lord, even he who only hath immortality, and in him death has now met his destroyer. The battle is short and decisive. No blows are struck, for death has already done his utmost. With a finger, the chariot of death is arrested. With a word, the spoil is taken from the mighty, and the lawful captive is delivered. Death flies defeated from the gates of the city, while Tabor and Hermon, which both looked down upon the scene, rejoice in the name of the Lord. This miracle gives witness to the reality that Jesus Christ is the Lord of life. He comes to loosen death's grip on us, to give life. This is what we find repeated again and again in John's gospel. In him was life, and the life was light to men. I came that they might have life and to have it abundantly. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Because I live, you also will live. And John tells us about his gospel. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And I hope that we see that this miracle is demonstrating to us that God comes in Jesus Christ to rescue us from our helpless and hopeless situation that we find ourselves in, much like the mother in the story. And to rescue us from being hauled off to the grave just like the young man. If you haven't experienced his rescue, I pray that you would this day. I pray that you would put your faith in Jesus Christ and find life by finding the sufficiency of his death and resurrection for you. 
by finding the forgiveness of sins offered to you on the cross and by finding the sweetness of reconciled relationship with the giver, sustainer, and redeemer of life. And this should cause us to rejoice, to glorify God just as the people did who were there that day. This is what Psalm 30 says. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. And if we are to glorify God, then it means we mustn't take our sin lightly anymore. It mustn't be trivialized. Not only because it dishonors God, but because it kills us. Every single sin is death. Our sins are leading us to death. They are carrying us off to the grave. Jesus didn't deliver us from sin and death so that we could continue to live in it. And the Apostle Paul asked in his epistle to the Romans, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism in death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Dearly beloved, be freed from sin's power and put sin to death in your bodies. This miracle then is about being brought out of death into life in the here and now. It is about Christ's power to give life to those who are dead in their sins. He can say to hearts that are now corrupt and lifeless, arise to repentance and live to the service of God. But this miracle is also pointing forward to a future day of judgment. Jesus spoke of both the raising spiritually from the dead in the here and now and the raising physically from the dead in the future. And when he says in John 5, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Christ comes that we might have life now, but also that we might be clothed in his righteousness, that we might stand blameless in the judgment and have eternal life in God's presence. The reality is that the day is coming when the trumpet will sound. The Christ will return and all the dead will be raised and judged by God. The season of Advent that we will enter into in just a couple of weeks is a time to remember this reality and to prepare for it. And this miracle gives witness to this coming day. What happens when the young man is raised from the dead? Luke tells us in verse 16 that fear seized the crowd. It is both a reverential awe before the Lord and a fear of God's power, which includes the power of judgment. We read in, of this fear in the face of judgment in places like Joel. The Lord declares through the prophet Joel that the day of the Lord is coming, referring to the day when the Lord will come in judgment. And those who belong to Christ can rest in the peace of Christ. They can approach the grave with confidence and joy, knowing that they will be safe and complete in Christ on the day of judgment. 
It will be a marvelous day when they will be raised physically from the dead. Their souls will be reunited with their bodies that they might enter into the new Jerusalem where all bad things will become untrue and they will dwell, with the, dwell in the presence of the Lord for eternity. It is the Christian's blessed hope for others who are unconverted to Christ and who thus find themselves on the wrong side of God's judgment, this will be a dreadful day. Joel describes this day as a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and darkness. And before the fire of God's judgment, the peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. The Lord urges through Joel then, yet even now, return to me. Return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. And then Joel encourages, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Death is a consequence of the fall and thus a reminder of the punishment of our sins. But we are able by the grace of God in Jesus Christ through faith in him to escape eternal punishment, the second death. Our physical death then becomes the means by which we enter into eternal life in God's presence. But we must repent and turn to Jesus Christ. This miracle in Luke 7 prepares us for the disciples of John the Baptist who will come in the next passage asking Jesus if he is the one who is to come or if they should go and look for another. And Jesus responds, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John had called people to repent for the kingdom of God was at hand, and indeed the kingdom of God came in Jesus Christ. These miracles that we have looked at were evidence of this, as Jesus here states, but the call to repent and turn to Jesus for salvation remains today and is as urgent as ever. Each moment is a moment closer to physical death and a moment closer to Jesus' return. We must turn from our sin and turn to the one who has come to save us from both sin and death, who has swallowed up death for us. Otherwise, we will be excluded from God's kingdom eternally. But it's not just we who need to turn and find newness of life in Christ Jesus. We should desire that others would repent and place their faith in Jesus as well and thus be saved from destruction. Joel says this a little later. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep. And say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should the people say, why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? This miracle demonstrates that the Lord is merciful toward those who weep over others. Jesus hears the weeping of the mother and has compassion on her. He acts to put an end to her mourning. And as the body of Christ, we are a priesthood of all believers. And as such, we are to weep on behalf of others who are lost in their sin, dead, being carried to the grave. We ought to call on the, on the Lord on their behalf and pray for his mercy. Shouldn't our greatest longing be that others would know the one who quickens the spirit, who brings life from death, who grants freedom and joy? 
We see this in the Apostle Paul, don't we? He looks out over his people in Romans and declares, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And then he goes on to say, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. If the mother weeps over the physical death of her son, if she cannot bear to think of the separation from relationship and the corruption of the body that follows death, then how much more shall we mourn over the eternal death that awaits those who refuse Christ Jesus? Urging others to turn to Christ, Spurgeon stated, we could more readily go into the details as to a putrid corpse than we could survey the state of a soul lost forever. We dare not linger at the mouth of hell, but we are forced to remind you that there is a place where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. There is a place where those, who, where those must abide who are driven from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. It is an undurable, unendurable thought that you should be cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. I do not wonder that those who are not honest with you are afraid to tell you so and that you try yourself to doubt it, but with your Bible in your hand and with a conscience in your bosom, you cannot but fear the worst if you remain apart from Jesus and the life he freely gives. If you continue as you are and persevere in your sin and unbelief to the end of life, there is no help for it but that you must be condemned in the day of judgment. And dearly beloved, we hate to think about the reality of condemnation in hell, but it is found clearly in God's word. But praise be to God, God's word also tells us that Jesus Christ has come to rescue us from that condemnation that we deserve on account of our sins. He has come to restore us to relationship with God and provide us peace with God through faith in him and his sacrificial work. And this miracle gives witness to his power to save. But it also provides us with an image of our reality without Christ. It is grim, hopeless, helpless, weeping, darkness, death. So how about us? How about you? Are we weeping over our own sins and repenting of them? Are we also grieving over family members and friends who are living in sin unrepentantly, who are dead spiritually, who are being carried off this moment to the grave by following the ways of this world? In our prayers, do we weep over those who dwell in darkness, who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, who have decided to worship idols rather than worshiping the creator of the universe, who have traded eternal joy to chase after temporal pleasures? who rather than live in freedom to Christ, live instead in bondage to sin. Do we weep for these people? And it might be those in our lives who we find so enjoyable and who provide us with such charming company who on the outside are so agreeably attired but on the inside are lifeless. Corpses dressed for their burial. Are we crying out to our Heavenly Father on their behalf, asking Him to illumine their darkness, open their blind eyes, and stop their deaf ears, quicken their dead hearts? It's my prayer this day that this miracle, which stands at the pinnacle of all miracles performed in Jesus' earthly ministry, 
would give us hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. That it would encourage us to find true life in him and remove any fear of the grave. That it would spur us on to live in the abundance of that life, rejoicing and praising God for his goodness. And that it would create in us a desire to share that life with others and plead with the Lord on their behalf. Dearly beloved, I hope that we're doing that. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks and praise that you are the Lord of life. That you have come and swallowed up death for us. That in you we might experience life and life abundantly. Lord, help us to turn from our sin. Help us to turn from death and to come to you and find forgiveness of sins, newness of life. Help us to live in the power of your resurrection. Help us to hope for that day when you come again and we will enter eternity in your presence and the fullness of your joy and righteousness and peace. And Lord, help us to strive that others would know the life that is in Jesus Christ. Help us to plead on their behalf, to weep over them, just as Jesus did. Lord, we pray this in his name. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He ascended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand the resurrection of